Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Justin Hamilton, an old friend of the podcast and an old friend of mine. And as always, we had a very wide-ranging discussion that went across a whole bunch of things, uh, including culture, uh, pop culture and uh, movies and uh, consumption and your human brain and creativity and ageing. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. If you're in Sydney, I'm doing the Bondi Festival with Kronos for a few nights there. If you want to uh, see that, if you were in Sydney and you haven't seen that, that'll be good. I will try and record it and put it up on my Patreon, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. Thank you, everyone who supports me there. It is a phenomenal thing and I really appreciate it. I can never properly articulate how much I appreciate it, but it does um, make a genuine difference to me being able to do my work. So... Enough of that. I will let you get on with listening to this podcast and I'll talk to you again next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hello and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. Uh, who are you and what are you drinking? My name is Justin Hamilton. I am drinking water from a mug that says, Don't forget Tars which is one of the robots in the movie Interstellar because I'm <laughs> a middle-aged white man and it might come as a bit of a shock, but I love Christopher Nolan movies and it suddenly feels like something you have to justify. We've hit that point in the man's career yeah. where it's not cool to be into him. Yes, which is always sad. It's sad when a thing that you like becomes an identity that you don't like. Yes. Uh, I have a joke in my show Mythos about men in their mid-40s who feel like Heath Ledger's representation of the Joker and Christopher Nolan's Batman is the perfect articulation of their inner monologue. And right. the audience laughs knowingly because they know that type of person. Yeah. And I always feel sort of weird about that joke because I know people who aren't like that, who yeah. love that movie. And it's so, you know, the kind of the meme culture that has risen up around the Joker character and around the legend of Heath Ledger and around Christopher Nolan is so uh, toxic. Yeah, no, it is. It, it completely is. And I would laugh at that joke as well because I agree with you because I like that performance for completely different reasons And but it has become that. But it's fine because this happens to everybody. Like David Bowie in the 90s, everyone made fun of him. Everyone made fun of him with his short orange hair making the outside album. Oh, look at Grandad, uh, you know, doing festivals with Prodigy and all of that kind of stuff. And then everything turned and you know what that makes me feel? Smug. Smug because <laughs> I never left my main man all the way through that period when it wasn't cool to like him and I'm ready to do that with Nolan. And I think I think <laughs> the younger generation is better at that, particularly with music because you can listen to Spotify Yeah, and it's um, – and so you, you don't have to wear your identity on your sleeve with what you like right? in the same way because you can just be listening to whatever you want on your headphones. No one needs to know whether you're a goth or an emo oh, or you can yeah. like all sorts of different things. Right. So it breaks down these kind of identities. So people, I think I read somewhere that people identify more by which comedians they like than right. by which uh, music they like because they're more likely to share a clip of a comedian. Okay, um, that's or a fascinating. Satirist or something. So it is super fascinating yeah. because throughout my whole childhood and certainly for my parents' lives, the kind of music you liked defined basically everything else, who you ran with, what kind of clothes you wore, what your lifestyle choices were. 
became sort of tied up with the kind of music you chose. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it that way before. I guess this generation of kids will be defined by which vaccine that they decided to use. But the <laughs> it's interesting because when I was young, I guess music for me, thinking about uh, off the back of what you just said, music for me was in many ways kind of solitary. I was uh-huh. not quite someone who listen to music with friends and therefore so I had two musical genres that I had real issues with getting into as a young fella were uh hair metal Mm -hmm. I just couldn't get into hair metal because and and I couldn't get into hip-hop and I couldn't get into hip-hop uh which is strange because I I liked all the music side of it but for me coming from a single mum background <laughs> I feel like I say this every time I'm on your podcast but anyway it's it was important. just a bit sexist yeah and I was deeply in tune to that it was it's also, also you read good poetry I read good poetry <laughs> the good stuff mate uh but the other thing is that you know I had gay friends at a very young age so I could never get into Eddie Murphy's delirious when he's dropping f-bombs and and I don't mean fuck you know yeah, yeah. and it's uh so while and I played basketball as a kid. Like I played – like I didn't just play basketball. I was playing like five days a week. I would ride to the stadium on a Sunday morning and I'd train for an hour and a half and then I'd hang around and train with whoever was on afterwards for an hour and a half and I loved playing. It was just so much fun. And all my friends were into hair metal or they were into hip-hop and I was finding it really difficult because I wasn't young enough to kind of be able to go – I can enjoy this without buying into it. And so I was off in my own little weird world where I was listening to David Bowie and Elvis Costello and, uh, you know, the violent femmes, they might be giants, weird kind of acts like that. And so you spend a lot of your life defined in your own head. And this was back – I was reading comics at this time as well, which was not something that you told anyone ever – and so I had this weird life where I was playing a mainstream sport at the highest level of my age group and I was doing all these weird things and listening to these weird things and watching all these – watching Woody Allen movies, you know, which was not something that my age group were doing at that time either. And then it's just very funny to get to this age and I picture myself as someone who is left of centre. But I am in many ways the epitome of everything we should hate in the <laughs> arts community and it's devastating that this has turned out this way. <laughs> well, that's a sort of an interesting thing because so for so many people those would have been the – in roots to their finding a tribe. Right. If you had grown up in a bigger, broader community or a more open community, you would have found these people and then you might have defined yourself against them. You might have met all these people and gone, oh, well, these are wankers. I still like the music but I'm not like them in these ways. But you didn't have that opportunity. It's one of the reasons why uh, female comedians get funnier the more female comedians there are on the bill. Yes. Because comedy works as a dialectic. You see someone doing something and you go, oh, I want to do something like that. Yes. Or you go, oh, I don't want to do that. For me, uh, one of the things I talk about fairly often again is like I never talk about my relationships or my sexuality on stage because when I came in, every single female comedian was going either – oh, why am I single? (laughs) Or my boyfriend this, my husband this. Right. And I was like, well, I'm just not going to do any of that ever. That was my like rule going in. I'm never just going to, I'm never going to talk about that. Have you ever made any jokes uh, about sex 
Yeah, absolutely, but I have to come at them from a different angle. Right. So there are jokes that have emerged from relationships that I've had or emerged from observations that I've made. Yeah. But I have to find an angle in that isn't, oh, I had this experience or my boyfriend this or my husband this or my girlfriend this or, you know, I just go, what is the core of that observation? What's interesting about that? And it can't be, this is the person I'm banging. Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) and that's just, you know, that's partly like a a protective thing. It's partly like because my father was quite conservative and it seemed improper to talk about those things. It's partly because you're telling someone else's story. You're bringing someone in on that. You're exposing people to stuff. I had a thing where I put up a picture of myself a, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not famous by any means. Um, very unfamous, um, but I put up a picture of myself in which we're, I we're, a, we're diet famous. We're one calorie of famous. <laughs> the people who know me know me very well, and yes. everyone else has no fucking idea yeah. who I am. <laughs> it's a good the place best to be. Kind, yeah, yeah, the absolute <laughs> best kind of way to be. Um, but I put up this picture of myself, uh, and I, I had a curl coming over my forehead, and the light was casting a shadow onto my face. I don't put up very many selfies, uh, but this one I, I like the way that my eyes looked, so I put up this picture. Yeah. But the curl was casting a shadow just under my left eye and I got about 20 messages of people saying, are you all right, is someone hurting you? Oh. Because oh, it on. looked like a black eye. Oh, right. I wow. didn't think it did. I thought it was quite obvious that it was this shadow. And I thought, I'm so glad that I don't have a public partner. Oh, yeah. Because can you imagine bringing that into their life? Oh, awful. And I saw this with a friend of mine who's qu- who is very famous and they had a, a, a recent trouble in their relationship and they were getting hate mail and death threats and their partner was getting hate mail and death threats and this whole thing is on top of the fact that they're having trouble in their personal relationship. Can you imagine? Yeah. Like that you're – for me that seems ghastly. It just yes. seems horrifying to open up your private life in that way. And I know people think of comedians as being very open. Yeah. But for me, there's there's very strict lines. You know, I'm an open book with sealed sections. There's strict lines about what I want to protect yeah. in my life and who I want to protect and where the lines are for me. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, we're pretty similar in that regard. I'm very much open with the – well, I try to be at least the emotions that I'm experiencing. Yeah. But uh, when it comes down to definition, that's where I – lean into the world of fiction, the Three Colours Hamo show was born out of the fact that in the lead up to the comedy festival that year, and this is back when I used to do the comedy festival every year, and if there's one thing I would change, it is that. (laughs) I do not think you need to do the comedy festival every year. There are whole shows that I look back on and think, man, if that had been given another six months, I would have ironed out a few kinks and that would have been good to go. But anyway, Three Colours Hamo was born out of the fact that in the previous uh, six, seven months, I'd had a breakup with a partner who had been a – uh, it had been an on-again, off-again kind of relationship and was an up-and-down kind of thing and it was traumatic in its own way. But we were also working towards – uh, friendship, which has endured to this day, like we're still best pals, but that's all I'd experienced, and I didn't want to throw her under the bus by talking about that. So the best way to do that was to explore it emotionally and then break it down into a fictional story, and then that way I had something that was something that I connected to and was resonant, but did not point at my poor ex going, 
look at her. You know, and that meant I could also bring stories from other places to flesh out this new character. Well, it's also – so I think you have two – there's so, so many interesting things coming out of that for me um, and I'll try and go to one and then the other and not get completely lost but we'll go off on <laughs> tangents because you're an interesting person to talk to and these things branch off in all different directions. So this is a fascinating thing. One of the things that I didn't like about people talking about their relationships or their sexuality and particularly women but everyone on stage – other than bringing in other people, was that it puts you in a box. Yeah. And I'm constantly in a tension um, between knowing that it's in some ways easier and more marketable and you're easier to deal with if you're put into a box and really fucking resisting being put into a box. Yeah. That, that people very much want to put women in a box. You're single or you're taken. You're uh, gay or you're straight. You're a Madonna or you're a whore, you're a maiden, you're a mother, you're a crone. Like th- there's these boxes that you get shuffled into and I never want to be defined in that way. I yeah. have this really strong resistance against people going, oh, yeah, I know what she is. Yeah. That f- frustrates me immensely whenever people assume they know who you are by what you are. It's really boring and it's also stifling and I think it happens to men as well but I think yes. there are more boxes for men. Yeah. and it, it, But even those boxes are in themselves can be really stifling and I find it very, and this is something that I've been wrestling with in the modern kind of progressive world, I find it frustrating that people are trying to make more boxes Well, it's be- rather than take down the boxes. Yes. I, I think it's essentially people just don't want to try too hard. Yeah, but, they, but you, you want this sense of tribe. You want this sense of belonging and that's yeah. important, particularly if you're a group that is marginalised or, or um, isolated or made to feel less than. That is yes. super important. And at the same time, like I believe that very strongly, at the same time I believe so strongly that what you are is the least interesting thing about you. Right. Like whatever it is. I don't think being a woman is an interesting thing or being non-binary. I don't think that's interesting. Yeah. It's just not interesting to me. It's a thing about you. Cool. Yeah. But I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's not relevant to whether we can have a conversation. It's not relevant to whether you're a compassionate person, whether you're going to help me if I'm in trouble, whether – just there's so many other things that I find more interesting. Yeah, and more engaging. And, and, and this sort of emphasis and focus on these things, I feel, takes attention away from other things that I would find more important. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. The, you know, it was the thing that sent me into a bit of a spiral in my early 40s where I could just feel that the industry and specifically the – people I was surrounded by in in Melbourne, in in the comedy scene, they, it was just, oh, you're that, this person now. And it was like, really? Like, I, like there's no room for improvement? Like, yeah. there's no room for having a think over here? There's no room for stumbling? Yeah. Like, I, I think that's why people overreact sometimes when someone makes a mistake because it's like, well, hang on, they're in this little box now and – you should be better than that. And it's like, no, because things are constantly moving and in flux. And Life isn't linear. It's not linear and you can get shit wrong and it's okay. But you've put me here and this is 
I now am expected to live up to all of these expectations on a consistent basis, but that there's no room for me to explore other things. Like I fundamentally feel like a very different person from say 47 to say like all my forties, you know, I 47 feels like a completely different version of me. Yeah. And it's, taken a bit of time and it's taken a bit of work and it's taken uh, a lot of thinking through stuff and it's great and that's one of the reasons when people say you're going to come back to Melbourne I'm like no why do I want to go back to Melbourne like they already have an idea of who I am but here in Sydney a city that does not give a shit about you in any way (laughs) I love it and it just kind of meant that I could get on with things and you know create a new version of me well and not think about whether what you're doing is consistent with this yes. type of person you're meant to be or this character of person. And I think that's maybe what I find so upsetting about it. And, again, mm. like I I hesitate to say objectionable because I understand that, like, there's this massive movement towards, you know, celebrating marginalised groups and that it's very important mm. to understand that where people come from or that there are these, you know, that that can affect your life. But it also it is this kind of asking people to make assumptions about you, mm. which is the mirror image of telling people not to make assumptions about you. Mm. And I, it doesn't, you're not breaking the cycle. No. You're just sort of shifting it slightly. You're not actually changing the fundamental problem, which is that people make assumptions about people. Yeah. So what you want to do is figure out a way to make that not as important, not as relevant, that there are, Assumptions they can make you about you because of the T-shirt you wear rather than the colour of your skin or right. the, the hairstyle you choose or you're breaking it down in some way. That's more important to me. Yeah, and that's why it's important for – and I know that sometimes it's difficult as a person who runs rooms that sometimes things are out of your control. You might have, for no apparent reason, four people cancel on you, like happened at the shelf once. We had four people cancel on us within – I think it was like within 40 minutes Oof. due to circumstances. That's fine. I always overbook those shows. You did them enough <laughs> to know that they went for hours. But the thing was, it was four women. All individually, you know, one person got held up at work. Someone was sick, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and then afterwards. <laughs> so anyway, so the point I was about to make, I'll tell you what was said to me afterwards. But the point I was about to make is that's why if you run rooms, it's important to do your best to put in as many different types of comedians as possible so they're not even inadvertently by the audience being reduced to that was the woman. Yeah, yeah. By the way, I had people that night complain to me that there were too many men on the show and it's like out of all the shows that we've ever done, <laughs> yeah. like, do, you, do you think that? <laughs> we can get a pass on one. Well, that yeah. was the thing you, I always enjoyed about doing The Shelf was that, yeah, it was one of those shows where you got to see what other women were doing. Yeah. And I always used to joke that they don't put us on the same bill because if we if we are ever backstage in more than two, we start get together and talk about the rapists. But <laughs> remember the good old days when it was just your periods aligning. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was uh, it was. And by the way, that was never that was never a, a moment of you know being woke or anything like that. The reason there were heaps of women booked was because there's heaps of women that I find really funny. Yeah. Like, I love Cal Wilson. Yeah. And Cal Wilson is... So funny. Always putting in the effort, always coming prepared, is an absolute professional and is an 
delight as a human being and I love her dearly. Claire Hooper. I love Claire Hooper. Claire Hooper was on the show all the time. You know why? Because she's funny yeah. and she's going to come and bring some interesting stuff to the stage. I like Claire Hooper the most when she's going off tangent. Oh, so good. Like her straight stand-up, fine. Everyone knows Claire yeah. Hooper does good stand-up. But when she's doing something really weird or yeah. a, a fairy tale yeah. or like I think she just is – so brilliant in those moments. I think people underestimate her a lot. Oh, absolutely. You know, there is one of my favourite things to do with Claire. I haven't seen Hoops in ages, but she she picks up on joy from other people and she you can if you get her going, like if you are throwing stuff her way, you can see the energy build up in her and then she starts adding to what you're talking about and she'll take it in a direction that you had no idea and she's laughing while she's doing it and she's, you know, she's good people. Yeah, yeah, Bring, bringing joy to a room I think is is super important. Um, yeah, I, I'll tell you a thing afterwards but I can't, I can't talk about it now. But <laughs> Going to have to set up a new tier on your Patreon <laughs> for the very special. For the very special things. <laughs> That I'm not allowed to talk about on here. $20,000 uh, podcast because it will go straight to the lawyer fund. So let's take two steps back and go to um, the cycle of production of doing a festival every year because yeah. you obviously last year, um, for those of you listening in the future, we just had a pandemic mm. and uh, Melbourne was not on. I flew back for Melbourne. It was cancelled mm. and I've been luckily trapped in Australia, one of the best places to be for the whole year. But this year Melbourne was sort of on-ish. Mm more or less, yeah. and you didn't do the festival. No. But that, you know, after many, many years of doing it every year, I'd like you to, like, talk about that a little bit because that can't have been a non-decision. Uh, yeah. So this year not doing it was for slightly different reasons. And so, so I did it I, – I actually don't know, but I did it a lot of times in a row from 2000 to – 2013 or something, 14 or something like that. And even that, the year that I didn't officially do a show, I headlined a comedy room for three and a half weeks. Yeah, you did a residency, which is essentially the same thing. Yeah. You're doing more or less a show, but you can guarantee you're going to be paid. Yeah, yeah. it was, uh, to be honest, pretty sweet. Um, and then uh, so I was doing that Tuesday to Saturday. I was doing the show off on the Monday and I was doing – um, the New Zealand show fan fiction comedy on Sundays. So for a, for a year that a lot of people in the comedy festival said that I took off, I did a lot. But yeah. that's how they view those things. So the idea of uh, not doing the, the festival is, and I had done the Adelaide Fringe every Fringe since 1996 and then I missed it. The first time I missed it was I had an opportunity to go and perform in Afghanistan and I took that opportunity. And there's there's something that's important to really get into your head, especially when you're ingrained in a festival and it's a really important thing to get into your head and realise, which is nobody gives a shit and if you're not there, who gives a fuck? The festival's still going to go ahead and everyone's going to have a good time. And it's fine. Yeah. Be fine with it. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Now, there are ramifications for not doing the festival, which is uh, over the last couple of years of being on again, off again with the festival, uh, you know, my live audience has diminished through doing that, you know, because 
probably for a number of factors. One, uh, you're not there at the festival every year. That makes sense. Two, uh, probably a lot of the people that are fans of mine have grown up and probably have grown up things that they have to deal with. And if they only have an opportunity to go out and see one show, they'd probably rather spend uh, $50 seeing Will Anderson than coming to see uh, me, which is not a bad thing. Like Will's great, but that's... That's just the mindset. You're going to have a big night out rather than go and see some interesting arty thing. Yeah. Not to say that Will's not interesting and arty, but you know. Yeah. But you know where I'm coming from. But the – and then also because like you, I just never wanted to be boxed in. Like it just – it makes me feel claustrophobic and it makes me feel – really sad the idea of that because I didn't get into this to be on the cover of TV Week. Well, I didn't I, get yeah, on this to – It diminishes you, I feel. Oh, God, I did not get into this to flagellate myself on the project. Like, you know, I don't want to wear a suit and say a one-liner and that's my fucking day, you know. Like I got into this because there was something inside of me that was burning away and I wanted to create and in the process – Entertain people, like, you know. So there's something you said many years ago on your podcast. Can you take this photo, please? R.I.P. R.I.P. (laughs) Many years ago and it struck me immensely that somebody, a friend of yours, one of the Doug Anthony All-Stars, had told you once that you were a thwarted novelist and that you did – Stand up, stand up was good because it was the essentially the minimum viable product right. for an idea that you can write the idea and you can test it that night. Yes, Richard Fadler. Richard, that there's no there's no process to getting the idea out there. Yeah, there's this frictionlessness that's so satisfying, and I think that's one of the things that draws people to comedy. People who like ideas but don't necessarily. You know, there's a lot of people with ADD in the industry who don't necessarily have the discipline to do a longer form project. Uh, but you, I think, are you do have the discipline for longer form projects, right? You do have these kind of long form, you know, novels in you and and scripts and things like that. And I, I find it interesting when you were talking about not wanting to get caught in that cycle of doing the festival every year. Yeah. I'm speculating here, but is it because you feel like that kind of energy could have been put to better use? Uh, yes, uh, not necessarily. Actually, not better use. Uh, you know, the. I, I think one of the things that – okay, so there's a couple of things there. One is one of the things that has thwarted my ambition or stifled my, my ambition in book writing and script writing and all of that is I unfortunately know too much about how politics works Uh and that is depressing and it is a constant wall that I hit because, you know, like I I know we were joking about, um, you know, joking about, you know, being a weirdo trapped in the body of a white middle-aged man but the – Uh, fact remains that in the arts what happens is uh, everyone's looking for uh, a myriad type of uh, minority out there which is exactly what should be happening like I totally agree with that I think that is the right move and I think it's really exciting and I think it's really good for 
Unfortunately for everyone, what happened was there was an overstock of a particular kind of person. Yes. And now there's a big kind of pileup, I think. There's a reset. And it's and it's one of those things where when people get angry saying that person's not right for the job and they're only getting it because they're a minority, well, maybe if the industry had done a better job of giving those people opportunities in the past, then maybe it would be on merit. But you have to at some point start giving these people the opportunities. Well, and yes, what particularly when it comes to entertainment, what defines merit is what people are... I mean, that's a very amorphous idea, what yeah. defines merit. Like, you know, back in the day, maybe it was that you could dance and sing and do a little bit of sword fighting. Right. And then for a while there, it's, you know, that you looked like a statue of a cartoon of a woman. Right. You know, and then, for <laughs> you know, for a while there, it's just you had a jawline that could cut steel. There yeah. are incredibly famous people who are famous just because they look improbable. Yeah. You know, and that's not merit or but it is in terms of their job, which yeah. is to stand there and have light reflect off them and right. not act very well. Right. You know, that. What I, I always find it frustrating when people get tangled up in the idea of merit, particularly when it comes to awards and things, because oh, I don't yeah. think many people win awards that don't deserve them. I just think usually there's about 50 other people that also deserve the same award. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. It was one of the things that ruined me with the – I used to love watching the Academy Awards. I used to watch it with mum all the time. And then uh, the year that Shakespeare and Love won Best Picture – and it was a real shock at the time, but I remember watching it going, oh, well, you know, that must have been the best picture then. And and I'd seen it and I'd seen the other films that had been nominated, but, you know, I just kind of figured I what it was winning for was aspects that I didn't understand just as a moviegoer. And then years later I read about the Oscars campaign that the Weinsteins put into play and that's why they won. And then you suddenly go, well, you know, it's not saying that, I bought into the awards 100%, but that popped the bubble of any sense of the right thing winning for the right reasons. Yes, yeah, and and I think that really came home to me when I was judging the British Podcasting Awards, which I do most years now. Oh, right. Um, was when – so you, 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 go, you get given the long list yep. and you go through each of them. You have a small sample of the thing. You listen to it uh, and then you rank it out of five in a number of categories yeah. and you rank it out of five in sort of production quality, innovativeness, you know, there's like, you know, a number of categories Yeah. and you're there with three or four other judges and there's a kind of a Venn diagram overlap of the five shows that you all think mm. were pretty good overall. And, in, and what that doesn't include, that automatically cuts out p- things that were like brilliant in one way mm. but fell short in another way. Yeah. Something that was like wildly innovative and creative and beautiful and heartbreaking but the production quality wasn't good. Yeah. That's going to go down the ranks. Yeah. And, you know, not all judging happens exactly like this but there are things like that that sort of, oh, wow, okay. So things that are difficult to categorise, things that aren't – Formal things that aren't orderly mm. are necessarily going to fall to the wayside, mm. and that was enlightening to me because I always want to be disorderly. I always want to be outside categorization. I mm. always want to be not in the drop-down box. Mm. You know, I want to be in the thing that doesn't have the category in the drop-down box mm. because I want to be my own thing. And so that was really like mind-blowing. And then the next thing is, once you have the short list, you sit down, right, and you go, okay. So here's our top five. What do we want to say about ourselves as an industry? 
the first time they had that conversation, I've done this for a couple of years now, the first time they had that conversation I was like, I beg your pardon? Right. Don't we want to say we reward the best thing? Right. That's a bummer. Yeah, and it, but, it, but it was like, so what do we, no, no, because what, when you give an award, what you're, you're encouraging more things like that. You want people to want to get the award, so they'll mm. do things that are like that. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap, I have never seen anything. Again, this, is, this was just a revelation about why I will never get an award, mm. which is when I see something get an award, I think, okay, that's been done. I won't do anything like that. Oh, that's so funny. That's exactly how I feel as well. And if, you know, uh, like sometimes I remember watching, who was I watching? Oh, God. I say I remember watching now. I can't remember who it was. But I remember watching someone and, and they're, oh, it was when I saw Fleabag. Uh, so I was lucky enough to uh, Hannah Norris uh, picked up a ticket to see Fleabag as when it was just a theatrical show before the TV series on its final night yeah. at the Soho Theatre, and uh, when I saw that, it was a really big inspiration for the John Tildadamus shows because it it wasn't necessarily that I saw something that I'd never. Uh, seen before production-wise, but it was a reminder of what you can do and how you can do it. And if you saw my show compared to that, A, you would not compare them, but B, like they're very different as well. But just seeing that was such an inspiration and she was so wonderful and it was so like intoxicating. And it's such a good show. Yeah. And it also got rewarded because it came at a particular time. Yeah. When uh, streaming services were opening up, commissioning was going and is now yeah. going broad. Yeah. They're looking for niche audiences. And so it's not that Fleabag isn't brilliant. It is. Yeah, it is. But it also, if it had happened 10 years ago, it would not have been rewarded. No, no, not at all. Because what they're trying to encourage in the industry right now yeah. is X, Y, and Z. And that Fleabag represents you know, female voices yeah. uh, breaking down taboos about sex. Uh, you know, the, like the, the this kind of um, genre-busting convention stuff mm. that she does so brilliantly. Mm. There is now an appetite for that in the market. Yeah. And not to sound cynical because, again, it's a that's, brilliant show. And that's how the market works and it's not her fault. It's not her fault. No, in fact, I'm so glad that that's what yeah. the market wants right now because it opens up space for things that I might want to do. Yeah. But to pretend that it just won because it was the best show, that's the only reason that it won, is to be, I think, naive. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you can... I'm seeing it with a couple of uh, younger comedians who have had a bit of uh, uh, bit of success in the last couple of years, and they're suddenly uh, one one person in in particular who's quite perceptive and has just started to notice. Hang on a sec, that the phone's not ringing as much. You know, just starting to notice that the focus is being removed, and this person is not upset about it but he but he's quite clearly just watched it happen to other people so he's recognized oh is this is it oh this is going to happen right this is yeah this is what it looks like no one is immune to the disease that is fame yeah you know the so the so the thing that i get frustrated with and i think maybe we've talked about this before on the podcast so i apologize but the the fact remains that uh 
there's no diversity amongst the middle-aged white men in this industry. <laughs> and yeah, there should be diversity in that as well, right? Which is weird to me because they're all on the same bills together so they should be watching each other right. and figuring out what they want to do that's different. But they don't seem to be. No, and it's, it's all the same people getting all the same opportunities. And uh, recent, uh, in, in lockdown last year I came up with uh, an idea for a – reality TV show uh, that I was very happy with. But nobody was going to answer the phone to me or respond to my email. So I brought in someone with a higher profile to help me out with it. And uh, that person opened all the doors. And then once that happened, management got involved. And then we would have these uh, meetings and I barely got to talk, even though it was my (laughs) idea. And eventually the idea didn't go anywhere and nobody fundamentally understood what the point of it was. <laughs> and it was – so so that's that's the thing that kind of stifles me with things and that's why I've been uh, – that's why I returned to the podcast world because I can just like – like with, with Big Squid, right? So in the last season of that we – covered all of the Nolan movies going into Tenet. And then it was like, well, we should cover, uh, Ben Elwood and I, we should cover another director. Now, the smart move, building a, a new podcast, is who do you go with? David Fincher off the back of Nolan? Do you go Paul Thomas Anderson? You know, do you go weird, and I put weird in inverted commas, do you do the Coen brothers or Wes Anderson? Do you go Spielberg? All of these directors, right? Yeah. And... The last thing I wanted the podcast to be was two dudes with dicks talking about movies made by a guy with a dick. And so we've been doing Sophia Coppola's films. And we I even do I do little competitions on the podcast. I mean, Sophia Coppola is such an interesting director because she's brilliant in so many ways and problematic in a number of ways as well. I guess, you know, I have to be honest, uh, I think she's one of the most underrated funny directors around. I have been watching these movies and I think she is so funny and I reckon a lot of people miss the humour. Well, I don't watch enough movies to have an opinion, so I Oh, will... yeah, no, 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 I wasn't saying, but it's it is a so it's funny, I hear the pro, I heard the problematic stuff and I barely hear the funny thing. And then I'm watching these movies. So just before we get into that, the um so hang on. Three things. God damn it, Alice Fraser. Uh, this is this is like our conversations <laughs> yeah, normally, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So so first of all, if if Big Squid was a TV show, yes, we would have been not allowed to do that because yeah. they would have said that doesn't make any sense. You, we've got to build on what you've already done. Now I like Nolan's movies for lots of different reasons, and but I'm also cognizant of where I where that could be and I thought it was important early in this new podcast to let the people listening know we're going to do things differently here. So every now and again, so we're doing Coppola films, I'll read out a passage from a short story by John Cheever, I'll talk with Charlie Clawson about a cult movie called Near Dark, I'm doing a rewatch of The Leftovers, if there's a poem that I like, I'll read out the poem. Do you know what I mean? Like it'll be, it's just art and entertainment and what I'm into and celebrating it. So that means I'm not being told what to do by people. Well, and also that that what you're into is not defined by who you are any more than it is for anyone. Yeah. It's one of the things that I find sort of frustrating about the idea of privilege is that, you know, 
course, it's a privilege to not be defined by what you are. For so many right. years, it was normal uh, normal people. That's this the invisible category was men, yeah, and white men, yeah, and that and and I'm talking about this in the in the West and in particularly American culture because you know, there's many cultures in the world which we can forget, yeah, uh, and then people started noticing that you know I, when I look in the mirror there's that classic sort of quote when I look in the mirror I don't see a person I see a female person and when a you know disabled person looks in the mirror they don't see a person they see a disabled female person so on and so forth, um. And that the response to that was you notice this privilege and then rather than trying to give everybody this privilege, trying to go, well, everybody's a normal, everybody's a person, Mm. everyone should be allowed to look in the mirror, it's now we have to make everyone feel self-conscious or self-aware or self. this kind of – it's it's part of individualism Mm. and part of capitalism that you need to – you need to be a demographic so that they can market to you. Yeah, yeah. And Facebook and Twitter and all of that feed into that. They want you to tick a box. They want you to say yeah. you're you know mid you're a millennial, you're a you're middle class, you're a, all of these things are only relevant if they're trying to sell you something. Yeah. Yeah. Algorithms. You know, the privilege should be this is one of those privileges that isn't a privilege. It's mm. one of those privileges that should be a right and it's weird that it's a privilege. Mm. And and there, there are some privileges that are just privileges and people who get them get them and they should enjoy them, whatever it is, if you have a limousine driver. Yeah. You should enjoy the shit out of your limousine ride yeah. and then maybe think about <laughs> contributing some money to public transport, something like that. But there are privileges that should just be rights. Yeah. It should be a right to drive home unmolested by the police if you're not a criminal. Right. You know, like, so I find it frustrating yeah when they want you to be a demographic and they <sighs> they want you to like certain things and think certain things and feel certain things because of what you are yeah it's boring as well it's just really boring yeah what a boring world to live in um so I'd, just for one second on the sophia coppola thing yes so i'd seen uh, probably half her movies and but i'm kind of watching them with a different eye at the moment yeah and some of the things that people said were problematic are uh, interesting to me because uh, so as an example, lost in translation, there is a sense that she che- treats the Japanese culture as the other, and there's a point where Bill Murray is kind of you know saying things that are borderline racist and or you know probably are racist. Uh, you know the way he's joking around, not not nasty racism, but humor yeah, yeah, racism, yeah. Base, but baseline racism, yeah. But the thing is, is that I think the point of that movie is, is that they're two people who aren't connecting to the culture they're in, and I also don't think because she's not coming in with a heavy-handed, and then someone says, yeah. "Hey, shouldn't make those jokes." It doesn't make him look good to be being racist, right? I don't think situation. it's meant to. And and then also there's this question, and this comes back to American cultural imperialism, of because this is a, an a film that's being made for an American audience yeah. with American stars. So these, the question about racism is sort of the sh- it's shifted definition in the last five or ten years mm. to be about syst- systemic oppression mm-hmm. and a, racism is a manifestation of systemic oppression. If you're in Japan, um, 
that's a very different issue. Mm. I mean, some of the Japanese people I know are the most racist people I know. Right. And to tell a Japanese person in Japan that they are considered less than would be wildly incomprehensible. Right. You know, there, there's there's a very, you know, there's a cultural thing about looking down on foreigners that they have that's really deeply rooted in the culture and you can see, you know, obviously I'm I'm talking out of school here but you can see really interesting writing by Japanese people discussing this issue. This is not me making yeah. something up. And so it's an it's an odd thing to import these ideas because right. I, I like I don't have it like I don't know whether she was being racist or Bill Murray was being racist or she's commenting on his racism or if she's commenting on racism in general or if she's commenting on American racism against Japanese people or American entitlement there's so many things that it could be I haven't seen the movie um but to just sort of assume that something's going on yeah I I honestly think it's this is who the guy is and this is the kind of joke he'd make and he made it and now it's up to you to think. I think what's interesting about her filmmaking is that she doesn't appear to be taking or making judgment on people, so she kind of leaves it open to you. One one of the movies that I watched, which the so I try not to read too much beforehand, but the reviews of the movie somewhere were essentially uh, this guy, you know, this character who's a, an actor like the Brad Pitt. Tom Cruise level. He's not interesting. Uh, nothing happens in this movie, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I watched it and the first – and it's it's quite dreamy. It's like one of the most dreamlike movies I've ever watched. But the first, like, two and a half minutes is a locked-off shot of a car going around a racetrack for just going around. And about 45 seconds in, I started to get that panicky, oh, there's going to be an accident. Yeah. There's going to be an accident. And then, like – a minute and a half later when there was no accident, I started laughing because it was like this is an audacious way to start this movie (laughs) and then he just stopped and got out and it was the credits and I could not stop laughing from that moment on. There's a scene where he's – this actor is disaffected and disassociated from his life and he's sitting in his bedroom at the Chateau Marmont and he's watching two women pole dancers do their act at the foot of his bed to the Foo Fighters – my hero. Now, it is so funny and the the shot lasts for ages. Like that scene lasts for ages and it, it's just them smiling, being very professional, him smiling, trying to pay attention to what they're doing and then at the end of it they just pack up their poles and, and leave. And then a couple of scenes later you see him sitting by himself and he's drinking, he's taking barbiturates and he's smoking and you're thinking, fuck, this guy's having a road to Damascus moment. You know, he knows that he's disconnected from life. He knows that he needs to get shit together. Look at him, he's this big star and he's just trapped in this hotel. What's he going to do? And then it cuts and he's got two new girls doing a pole dance and I could not (laughs) stop laughing at that because it's funny, you know, and I think it's because because she's – not a guy coming in hard with the budum tish because it's just there and she doesn't seem to be paying or passing any judgment to it. You, it's it's funny, but it's all in the edit. It's all in the filmmaking. It's all in the way she just stays on a scene for a long time. And builds up your expectations based on previous films that you've seen. Right. It's just a, she's a really funny filmmaker, and I just kind of it's a very interesting thing to. It's also look. a very empathetic way to write a film, and yes. maybe that's where kind of 
femininity or female socialization comes in yes. because she I think sometimes I can feel sometimes with movies uh I, okay let's not talk about movies I don't know anything about movies uh let's say golden age sci-fi okay yeah very male written very um sort of emotionless writing okay they're interested in the systems and you yeah. can tell that they're interested in the are systems are we talking so, sorry just so I get my head around Isaac Asimov around that yeah, era yeah Asimov yep. Arthur C Clarke yep. they're writing about these systems and the yep. heroes are sort of um it's not that they're not driven, it's not that they have no internal life, but right. they're very um, sort of utilitarian in the way they approach things. And it was a revelation to come to female sci-fi writers who, whether by socialisation or because women are better at it or whatever, notice how people would feel. Right. They they make note of how people would feel. Right. Not just how people would act, yeah. which ends up being not how people would act. If you don't factor in how people would feel, you don't have any idea of how people would act. act. Yeah. If you think about this new technology coming in, and in the same way I think this is one of the things that um, female film writers, film uh, directors can be better at. Yeah. It's not that there aren't empathetic male filmmakers, but one of the things that I've noticed as there are more kind of prominent female-directed films coming forward is that Attention is paid in the filming mm. to emotional reactions that might otherwise go yeah. by the wayside. Yeah, and I'm not. I think that's not just a, a gendered thing. I think that also is coming in from the golden age of television that's happening at the moment, right? Um, which has given more space to actors to do these kind of long form emotional things. You don't just have to get it across and drive the plot forward, that you can take a minute and show the complexity of an emotional landscape and yeah. then how that moves the plot forward. Yeah. That that emotion is action as much as anything else in, yeah. in the context of a film because that's how people actually are. Right. People don't just react to a thing and then do a thing. Yeah. They have a, they have a whole thing, you know, they have a whole set of emotions and then they act. Or they don't act, and right. that's also important, right? And I, I think I don't know. It's just it, it's. I, I agree with all of that, and I think that applies to Copeland. I'm sure I'm not discounting anyone's issues with her work, but for me, the most fascinating thing coming in was just nobody that I know ever talked about how consistently funny she is, <laughs> and it, it's just been like. Like it's so obvious to me yeah. sitting there just finding her hilarious. So, yeah, this is an, an – and as for someone who started out this podcast talking about how my gender is the least important thing about me, I'm going to double down on what I just – the point I just made and then come back to – Are we about to talk about your to, vagina? We're going to talk about my vagina. Uh, no, we're going to talk about um, getting the benefit of the doubt right. as a woman, as a female comedian. The, I, the number of reviews I got, particularly early on, and maybe it's because of my – stage presence, it could be that there was a fair criticism. The number of reviews that I got that contained some version of it somehow comes together. She looks overwhelmed but then it somehow comes together. She's taking on more than she can chew and then it sort of resolves itself. The kind of reviews that I was getting particularly early on in my career as though I wasn't doing it on purpose, as though the uncertainty wasn't part of the performance to bring the audience along with me so I'm not giving them a lecture about how, what I think, I'm showing them how I got to this point, like as though I were not a craftsperson. Right. So this assumption might be what's at play here. Again, I haven't watched uh, a lot of movies, but this assumption that she's not being funny on purpose 
Yeah, or might be what's playing in. Oh, I just think people don't even realize it. Like, yeah. th- like comedy. Once again, it's broad. Yeah. Like all good comedy is fantastic and and has all these different approaches. It was like uh, the Bling Ring, which was the movie about the young. It was based on the story about those kids in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, who were breaking into Paris Hilton's home and stealing all this stuff. And I'd heard awful reviews about it, and I watched it, and I could not stop laughing. But some of the comedy to me was the fact that she got permission to shoot inside of Paris Hilton's house. So when you're watching these scenes and you're seeing pillows with Paris Hilton's face on them, you know, on a lounge that are in a room with a big painting of Paris Hilton with her pole dancing uh, staged in that room, like that's that's her place. And isn't it funny that she's just said, yeah, you can shoot here. You know what? I'll even do a cameo. <laughs> and that to me is like that's part of the comedy. Yeah. Like no, no one at any point says, "Fuck, what's up with that?" But it's it, it's, it. it's funny that in the construction of this, <laughs> you've and you're you're showing someone who didn't even realize they were getting robbed at first because they have so much stuff that they didn't realize it was missing to begin with. Yeah, which is a commentary in itself, which is damning and funny. But then you are in her house. Yeah, and. That either says to me Paris Hilton has a really good sense of humour about herself or she's as vague as you might suspect she is or maybe it's somewhere so right I've in the met, middle. I met Paris Hilton once. Oh, did you really? And she is sharp as a tack. Right. She's in a very particular way. It's interesting. She has this skill set. She's a real sort of relentless businesswoman. She's yeah. so self-aware and so self-conscious Yeah. Um, in both the positive and negative senses. She is when I met her, it was backstage at a show that I was doing social media on, and uh, she was uh, she was uh, directing her assistants to move this pot plant and open this window and put this picture on Snapchat and put this picture on Instagram and just she was directing her whole life with herself as a central character. Yeah, which is mind-boggling. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's that's an incredible skill set that I don't have and right. pro- probably could never be bothered to acquire because it's not my priority. Oh my god! It sounds but it's exhausting. not like yeah. <laughs> but it, she was switched on yeah to the max. She was one hundred percent aware of everything that was happening around her and how she looked. Yes, and, and how she was perceived, and to to again to not give her the benefit of the doubt. Right. To and I was I've been guilty of this in my teenage years to assume that she's some dumb bimbo. Right. Because I was, you know, cool and intellectual. Yeah, she is ruthless and absolutely aware of everything that she's doing. Oh yeah, which is not to say that you know she doesn't have her own pathologies, but yeah, that character she chose to play and why she chose to play it was all like that is an accountant, right? So, and I have to feel I I want to just kind of clarify when I say vagueness, I kind of mean like I do. You do not get to be in that position for so many years without knowing what you're doing. Yeah. But where the comedy for her shooting in that scene is, is I can't work out like, and this is part of the fun of it. Like I I don't necessarily want to work it out either. This is what made me laugh. This is kind of ruining the laugh by explaining what was so funny about it. But it was, is she going, yeah, look at all this crazy shit I have. You should come in and film it. And isn't it bizarre or is she just going, hey, this happened to me and I really like this 
director and why don't you come in and film here? Then you can see actually what it looks like. And I know what I said is so degrees removed from yep. each other, but it's those little degrees that make me laugh. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And and <laughs> who's to say it's not a bit of both? And, and it's all not, moving right. between the two or right. that there's these moments of her going – you know, this is going to play into my self-image <laughs> right. and, you know, this is going to yeah. make me money or this is going to, you know, maybe that room didn't look like that until she invited them to come in and film and then she redecorated it with pictures of her own face in order to make, like, you like, don't know. Who knows? And that, and that to me is what is funny in the construction of a scene Yeah, and appeals to me. But I, and I'm, I'm not saying anyone watching her movies, uh, and not finding that funny are uh, incorrect, but I, f- I feel like it's really funny and it's – anyway, so that's been a very long-winded way of saying it's nice to work in places where you can just make stuff and if you get things wrong and you are going to get things wrong, it's, you know, it's you've got to be able to learn from it. And getting back to the point of not doing the comedy festival every year, there are shows that I look back on that I just – it's purely a production point of view where there was one show that I look back on and I feel mildly mortified. And to me it was – it was a show that was structured in a – with eight stories that went one, two, three, four – four, three, two, one. So they mirrored each other. And as they went out, they were meant to comment on each other. And at the time I also had uh, an app where, because this was just at the start of people being on their phones when you were performing. So there was an app when I talked about stuff, I'd say, hey, if you want to go to the app, you can get more jokes and more information on that. You can do it now while the show is on or you can do it afterwards. You know what happened? I had so many people just focused on me because they thought I was setting them up for a joke to make fun of them. Nobody used the app during the show. So that was a failure right from the start. Yeah. Uh, but then secondly, people commented that the sh- I had a couple of reviews that said that the show didn't have any structure, which drove me insane because it was so structured. And it was so structured to the extent that the show was called Circular, which was the structure. And But there was one story, which I won't tell now, but there was one story that was meant to undercut my stance in the first half of the show. And it was a funny story, but it was also intended to be showing that I can be a piece of shit as well. So just to make sure that people didn't think I was on my high horse about something. And in lockdown, because you had so much time to think and then I thought through I don't know why that show just popped into my head and I thought about it and I reckon that routine did not work because nobody realised what the structure of the show was and nobody was approaching the show the way I was approaching it. People didn't even understand why it was called fucking circular and so that you know what that routine did? Made me look like a piece of shit. So, so I mean, this is beautiful. I love that structure by that way by the way I love brackets brackets in in shows yeah. where you have sort of like I think of it as chopsticks you know the the song I'm yeah. sure that's not what it's meant to be called you know you play on the um piano because it has that same it's got small and then yeah. it gets bigger and then like yeah. it has this kind of uh, if you you could do a cross section of the show and look at it from above, I love those things, and yeah. I don't know how much audiences notice them, and I think they probably don't notice them as much as you would want them to, but um, I was thinking about you with my current show, mm. Kronos, 
there's a point in the last five minutes of the show where I I say the train's a metaphor for life. <laughs> Because I'm thinking about times when you've been like, they missed the fucking point uh, of the thing. Yeah. And I just, so, so it's just, and I've had that before with my own thing. Like I had a review of, of Empire where I talk about my costume in the first five minutes of the show where the, in The Scotsman um, yeah. the reviewer said that she's wearing a devil outfit. And I was like, no, it's a, the whole thing is about Disneyville. Anyway, <laughs> just going, the train's a metaphor and it makes me laugh every time. And sometimes it makes the audience laugh too, but it's just that 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 I always think of you when I say that line. So do you do you know? Ah, um, oh fuck! I love that so much. So do you remember there was a comedian who just won you know all the awards, and literally at the end of the show, <laughs> they would say, you know, this is a, this this show's about child abuse. You get that right? And I used to, and, I, and then I was walking out, and people would be going, "Oh mate, that is so sad." Like I, but. No, no one had thought that. Nobody had thought that at any point throughout the whole show. This person was tipping cornflakes on their head. They were, you know, yelling at people with mouths full of food. There was all sorts of stuff going on. And then they said that at the end and then won all these awards and all these reviews. And for the first couple of years, and I, by the way, I was a big fan of the show. I thought it was a really funny show, but I just found that to be such chicken shit. And then over the years, I just went, you know what? That person's correct. And so when I did the John Tildanima show, the last talking to the audience piece, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to be a wimp about this. I'm not going to say one sentence. I'm going to do a whole section on what all of these three <laughs> shows are meant to be about. And I explained to the audience <laughs> these shows are not about anything. They're, they're designed to be interpreted. They're meant to be whatever you think they're meant to be. So go and interpret. So I just told the audience what yeah. Yeah. I just went out of my way to tell them that it's not really about anything unless <laughs> it depends on what they what decided it is. It. Yeah, yeah. So yep. there's a nice little through line there. I, I love that you're doing that as well. Yep. That makes me. Well, it's just cause like, I, you know, it's that thing of you yeah. think, well, no one can miss that the train is a metaphor for life. <laughs> you know, I talk about this point in the train journey and all the stories are about like childhood and then I talk about this point of the train journey yeah. and all the stories about like young adulthood and then this part of the train journey I talk about like motherhood and like there's like I, there's a story about the maiden, the mother and the crone like bang yeah. on and then at half time I say it's halfway through the train journey and right. like the urgency of death, like the whole thing. And I just, when I was doing the show, I was like, there's no way they can miss that this is about. And I thought, but if they do, I'm just going to tell them. Give them a little nudge, a little yeah. nudge on the way out. I'm just going to tell them that I'm doing it on purpose. Yeah. No, I I think that's uh, – I don't think that's a bad thing as well. But, you know, like I, I also have to really point out my favourite type of entertainment in any medium is always one that can just be watched and it's fun and you enjoy it. And then if you want to, you can dig into it and find more. Yeah. Like that to me, yeah. that to me is the pinnacle of art. Yeah. Pop art, all of it. Yeah. So, well, yes, yes, so yes, you can't, yes. like, I, I have to make sure that I don't get frustrated. And it works in the opposite direction as well. That I think there's this thing about great art that sort of gets sort of mixed up where some people think great art shouldn't be enjoyable. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And the, the, it's the opposite direction as well, I think, so that you can dig deeper into something that seems fun on the surface and you realise that it's deeper than you expected. Yeah. But vice versa, something shouldn't just be deep. No. Because it has to work. It has to function. 
not necessarily as entertainment but as as art. Yes. It has to seize your attention in some way. It has to control you in some way. Yeah. Like, you know, I love David Bowie's album Let's Dance. You know why? Because it's called Let's Dance. And you know what it's full of? Heaps of tracks you can dance to. That's yeah, great. That's great. That's what he did. That's what he did. That's what he set out to do. He did it on purpose. Did it on purpose. Now, then Trains you Trains a metaphor for life. Trains a metaphor for life. <laughs> but then you watch the film clips and there's, you know, there's some political allegory about uh, racism in the in the China Girl Mm-mm. film clip, you know, and like, and then you listen to the lyrics and you go, oh, shit, this is this – is, because Iggy Pop wrote that song. He's really saying some stuff here. And, you know, you start to see a little bit more. But for the most part, let's dance. Let's dance. All right, we should wrap this up because I know you've got another appointment. Where can people find your work online? Oh, yeah. So uh, the Big Squid podcast is probably uh, the best place to find stuff at the moment. We've got uh, I think the next Sophia Coppola movie we're reviewing, which we've already reviewed that I'll put up, is Somewhere, which uh, if you haven't seen it and you feel like you want to watch it and then listen to the podcast, I would encourage you to do so. It only goes about 97 minutes. I thought it was deeply funny and I really loved it. So uh, if people want to do that and there's some, you know, I've got some nice guests who uh, are regulars like uh, Rachel Melanta who's, uh, oh, my God, that poor girl is still in lockdown in Canada. Like, oh, God. So uh, I love Rachel. So she's on uh, uh, fairly regularly. We've had Charlie Clawson and uh, Your Good Self and uh, AJ Lamarck, et cetera. And I'm also re-watching The Leftovers at the moment. So I've just started season two of that. So if you've watched that before or you're Leftovers curious or you want to re-watch, you can join in with that. But otherwise, um, if you just want to, you know, touch base, I'm on Twitter, Justin Hamilton underscore. Instagram, Justin Hamilton Comedian. I kind of like Instagram. It's kind of of all the social medias, it's the one. It seems to be currently at least the least toxic. Yeah. It feels like like I think I've only ever encountered two toxic comments on it ever. Yeah. It's quite – yeah. It was really jarring. But to be honest, I also – knock on wood, I don't get too much uh, awfulness on social media and I think that's because, getting back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, one calorie of fame. Yeah. Haven't appeared on some mainstream bullshit show that people start following you for no other reason other than they saw you on that and they have no idea what your ideology is. So then they freak out when you start yeah. not being who they thought you were on Dancing yeah. with the Stars. Also, not being not not being in the drop down box means that people can't project a thing onto you that you represent of yes. all other versions of you, which you know a lot of a lot of people do. Uh, Thank you so much for having tea with me. I always love talking to you. Yes, let's do it again. Yes.
know, or do you not? This top is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the doffers at every frame. Loudy rifle doll, loudy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you, doffers, cry up your ends. Loudy rifle doll, loudy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie our ends up, doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.